Stanford University. So James, just as a start, I mean, you've got a really interesting background. I mean, MD, PhD, you know, academic positions at UCSFs, Stanford, Harvard, and then went to become an entrepreneur. Be curious, tell me a little bit about why you made that transition and what you saw kind of the differences in impact between being in academia and being an entrepreneur, you know, founding and running a small company. Well, so the, my academic interests were not in business, but were in science and medicine. I started out with a curiosity about um, becoming a scientist and physician in an academic medical center and went through the whole you know, multi-year prolonged adolescence that that required in order to get trained as both an MD and a PhD. And then when the job offers came, I got job offers from a number of universities, including Harvard and WashU and University of Washington. And none of them felt particularly compelling because in all of these situations, I never felt that the science and medicine would actually meet one another. I thought that there was going to be a science component and there was going to be a medicine component, but they were two separate jobs. I could be working in the film industry on one and working as a scientist on the other. They didn't seem to relate to one another. And that was back in the, uh, in the, in the 80s and 90s when I think there truly was more of a two solitudes feel between science and medicine. So out of curiosity, I went to visit a number of companies, and lo and behold, I felt that within these companies, this was where science and medicine actually met one another and actually had a dialogue and a conversation whereby the clinician could think about clinical trials and think about clinical development from a scientific viewpoint, and the scientists could think about what they were doing with an output towards patients. And in the end, Rob, that's what drove me out of the university and into companies. The other thing I will fill, and I don't know how many of you are university professors or working in... You know, the universities were awfully slow, and I just felt that the, the, the pace at which things happened there were glacial, and that also bothered me. So things move faster in a startup, things move faster in companies, and I thought that medicine and science could meet one another. Now, I think even the more interesting transition is, I mean, you were CEO of two biotech companies, one of which you went through the whole taking public, been very, very successful, and then did a transition that I rarely see. It's very common in, in the biopharmaceutical industry for people to go from large companies, senior executives at a Merck, at a Pfizer, at a GlaxoSmithKline, to then run or take a senior position at a small company. You did the opposite. You went from not just being an officer in these companies, but actually running the companies, to taking a senior position at Genentech. I'd be curious, you know, you know, one, a little bit what your motivation was, but also what have you seen as the differences between doing science and development and the small companies in doing it in a world-class large organization such as Genentech. So the, uh, what allowed me really to make the transition were two things. One is that I had to let go of being the guy in charge. So I got actually, for those of you that eventually become CEOs and for those of you on the panel who are CEOs, um, and Don, you know this because I was a CEO in a company you were in, um, you get attached to the job. You get attached to the fact that you're the guy or you're the gal. You're the person running it. It's your story. And I was that way for many decades. And in order to go from there to a position where I wasn't the person in charge, the biggest thing I had to do was actually let go of that. I had to let go of being the guy in charge and get really comfortable with being a person on a team but not being the person who was running it. That was number one. And I think the reason many CEOs don't end up doing what I did is because they can't let go. Um, number two is that I was interested in what it would be like to move into an environment that had a, what looked to me like infinite financial container in terms of the size <laughs> and the amount of capital it had. So I was spending about 30% of my time as CEO of Cytokinex, a publicly traded biotech company, 
servicing Wall Street, servicing fund managers, uh, uh, and servicing other investors. And I know that this was a, it was a big and important part of my job, but it was a consuming part of my job. Fascinating and, sed and seductive at the beginning, and got a little bit tiresome at the end. And I was yearning for something that would connect me more into the science and medicine of what the actual business was. And so when I got a call to run business development at Genentech, that seemed like a natural choice. It was one of those calls you get where you just immediately just say, yes, I'll take the job. And it's literally a five-second uh, thought. So um, it was, it was, it was the, the run to a company where I didn't have to worry about fundraising, and, and, and I could think about bringing science and medicine in, in, a, in a place where the, the Hubble sphere, if you want, was infinitely large. And, another, uh, and the other one was letting go of being the person in charge. Now, what is different about being drug discovery and development at Genentech versus that at a biotech company, again, relates primarily to the size and amount of money we have. Right now, biotech companies in the therapeutics areas can, are limited by the amount of money they can raise. It's limited to whatever, 60, 70, 80 million dollars, maybe at the most. When I was running Cytokinetics, we could raise hundreds of millions of dollars, even before the public offering, and then another hundred at the public offering. For innovative ideas, the size of the financial container has to be larger than for non-innovative ideas, because you don't really know what path you have to go down therapeutically. And so now you have companies that want to be innovative but have a smaller container. They can't take things through into the, into the clinic as effectively as they could five or six or ten years ago. And as a result, they have to partner. Well, guess who they have to partner with? They have to partner with us. And so moving into the role on the partnership side where I knew what these guys were going through and I could actually solve a lot of their economic problems while at the same time developing a positive partnering relationship struck me as a wonderful place to go. And I think that's been the biggest difference. It's been literally that we have the money to actually do a proper development plan around these products and not cut corners. Maybe just following that up, maybe you can talk a little bit about what you're trying to accomplish in your current role and what do you see as the main opportunities for Genentech over the next five years you know, on the scientific side? Genentech is now owned by a large Swiss company that you may have heard of called Roche. So. Um, they acquired us, although many people in Basel feel it was the other way around. Um, <laughs> and at least culturally, we've had a major impact on Roche. The job of business development at Genentech in the past, and that continues to the present time, has been solely to bring the best science into Genentech. We have one of the best research, and, and I would argue the best development organization in the industry, especially in the area of cancer. And my goal is to scour the world for great scientific ideas and bring them into Genentech. It turns out that those great scientific ideas are almost all preclinical because, as I said, companies don't have the financial ability to bring things forward into the clinic. So most of the partnerships we do, we did 20 partnerships last year, my first year there, all of them were preclinical. And they were all preclinicals, that's where the best science was. So my role at Genentech is to bring the best science into Genentech. And the future, what I'm really excited about and what I think is, is going to turn out to be the real reason why the acquisition or merging, whatever you want to call it, of these two companies is going to turn out to be a positive, is the combination of innovative therapeutics that attack disease mechanisms combined with companion diagnostics to predict who's going to respond to those medicines. In fact, it is one of the only ways we have to dramatically increase the productivity of R&D and change our healthcare industry. We have to move from drugs that work in 40, 50 percent of the patients to drugs that work in 80, 90 percent of the patients. And the only way we can do that at least in the next 100 years, in my opinion, is to decide who's going to respond to the drug. And Genentech started that with Herceptin, but it's now going to become a clear part of almost everything we do. I'm sure uh, David and Bala are glad to hear you say <laughs> that. Uh, well, the last question is, 
Genentech, you know, over the, cor you know, the course of the time I've been in the industry, has been without doubt the most successful innovative company. The best science, the, you know, has really pushed frontiers in many ways. It's been really the place great scientists wanted, wanted to go to. What has Roche done to preserve that culture, really to preserve the secret sauce that made Genentech so successful? So when Roche acquired us, they specifically set Genentech aside as a separate unit. And they called it GRED, which is an acronym that stands for Genentech Research and Early Development. And what it means is the 2,000 scientists and clinicians that were Genentech's R&D engine are now set aside and fundamentally bubble-wrapped. And when I say bubble-wrapped, meaning we have our own governance, we have our own budget, and we don't actually, our, our, uh, our reporting relationship into Roche is right to the CEO. We don't report into an R&D unit within Basel. I don't report into a business development unit within Basel. We report into one person who heads up GRED, Richard Scheller, who's a former Stanford professor. And Richard reports directly to Severin Schwann, who's the CEO of Roche. And so what Roche did very cleverly, unlike, say, Pfizer, when they would acquire a company, what they would do would be to shut down the company and ask everyone to move to Groton. Well, Roche didn't say, we're going to shut down South San Francisco and everyone, everyone move to Basel or Nutley. What they did is they said, we're going to bubble wrap you. We want you to keep doing what you're doing. And they give us full governance as well as financial capability to do that. So within GRED, things haven't changed a whole lot. Well, Except our cost of capital has gone down. We are connected to the largest diagnostics company in the world. And we have a more stable financial base. So I think those are all positives. Great. Well, thanks, James. I'd like to move on to David. Sure. David is a CEO, as I mentioned, of CardioDX, which is a pioneering company in the genomics diagnostics field focused on the cardiovascular field. Uh, unlike James, David came up through the business side. As I learned earlier, David's uh, under, you know, is a Stanford MBA cloud somewhere in the 80s? Somewhere in the 80s. Somewhere yeah. in the 80s. We won't pay <laughs> it down more than that. Later side of the 80s. Yeah. And before that was an economic and computer science major. And now is running you know, one of the really premier, most you know, interesting companies in the, you know, in the life sciences fields. You know, you're kind of doing what a lot of the MBAs I teach want to do. It's like they don't have a technical background, and they come to me and say, I really want to run a really exciting, hot, early-stage company in the life sciences field. So maybe you can talk a little bit about your path and what advice you'd have for people who want to emulate that, if okay. they should. <laughs> yeah, ha happy to do that. So take everything that James said about his background and think the opposite, and then you got me. <laughs> um, so I think the last biology class I took was somewhere early in the high school days. Um, and, and, you know, actually grew up here and thought I'd be involved in technology firms. That was sort of my love and my passion, business school at Stanford. And coming out of the, that program, I got a, an offer to be the first employee at a company that another former GSB or a couple years before me was starting in the oncology space. And I was flattered to get the offer. Um, he and I had known each other a little bit. And I said, thanks, but no thanks. I know not, I couldn't even spell oncology. I knew it was related to cancer, but I couldn't even spell oncology. And so I went off and spent a couple years in the in the, in the venture business, all on the IT side. Um, but the guy that wanted to hire me was a persistent uh, guy, and the business model that he um, had started with didn't really work out, so he had sort of changed a couple of times, and you know, he called me two years later and said, now we got a different business model, and this is something that you know, I uh, really think you should do. And what I had been trying to do in those two years post-business school was find the right portfolio company to jump into. That's why I went into the venture business, not because I wanted to you know, be a venture capitalist, but because I thought that was the right form for figuring out and you know, taking a long interview process to say, okay, this is a company that I want to jump into. 
Um, and I did, I just didn't happen to jump into one either in the IT space or in the portfolio of the venture firm I was working with. Um, and so I came into this with my eyes you know, wide open, but not the pair of glasses I needed to have, I'd say. Um, and, and I started as the fourth employee at this company, and it was sort of serendipity at some point, which was I was there to sort of launch a new business unit, and good fortune shone down upon us, and this business unit went from zero to a billion dollars in six years, um, with number four in the Inc. 500 list of fast-growing companies. You know, it was in the oncology space we were distributing products uh, to medical oncologists with delivering chemo. So uh, I'd like to take a lot of credit for my career path and deliberateness and all the kind of things. Complete serendipity. Um, my philosophy had been if you associate yourself with really good, smart people, good things will happen to you. And in this case, uh, it did. And I sort of leveraged that into, you know, at least passing somewhat for, you know, having known something about the healthcare business and have done you know, three other companies since then. Talk a little bit about your current one, CardioDX. What's the mission of the company? What's the product? What's the status? Sure, and let me leverage off something that, that, that James said. I, I, like him, fundamentally believe that the only way we're going to improve our healthcare system dramatically in the next 100 or 50 years is to spend our current dollars more effectively and more efficiently. And um, the trajectory I had on from a career path, I did intersperse a couple of, uh, you know, venture roles, so I've actually gone back and forth between operating roles and venture roles, and I spent three years at TPG before I started CardioDX, and as I was sitting in the meetings at TPG when um, entrepreneurs would come in and present, particularly on the diagnostic side, I would I only ask one question, and it was always the same question. What's a doctor going to do differently with this piece of information than they can do today? And some of the great science, most of which that went right over my head, you know, the, the, the guys that were presenting, the entrepreneurs said, well, not much, but it's really cool science. It's really new. And I thought to myself, something's wrong with this picture. We have all of this incredible new technology that allows us to look at biology in a different way. And that technology is really driven by the mapping of the human genome and all of the technologies that spun off of that. And I said, something's wrong with this picture. We've got a better flashlight than we've ever had before. We're not using it appropriately. And CardioDX was really started in that vein um, and we looked at a lot of different therapeutic areas. So we approached this from as non-technical a side as you can get. I said, what are the biggest markets where the variability of care is so huge that even small improvements in diagnostics can have a big impact on patient care? Cardiology was, was clearly at the top of that list. And we interviewed 1,100 physicians to find out what their key challenges were in the delivery of care and we wrote the product spec, and then we went to the scientists and said, can you make a product that meets this need? And so we, we came at this from a very different standpoint. Now, it seems like totally obvious to me that having better information to make treatment decisions is, you know, that's sort of the future. I mean, that's what James said. said. Why, you know, you don't see very many companies yet that have been really successful in the space. There's, you know, Genomic Health, which sure. took a long time to build a business, and they've and finally a built dollars. one in the oncology yeah. space. But you haven't seen, you know, I would have thought there'd sort of be a flood of companies in this area. Yeah, I think there have what? been a number of roadblocks yeah. that have and are still in our way. Yeah. One is just inertia. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the other companies that I, I started and, and sold was in the handheld prescribing space. We write over three billion prescriptions by hand in this country, and given the technology we have, you'd think that's probably not the right thing to do. And so we developed a, a handheld device to write a prescription. And I use that example because 
Basically, when you were going in to sell that to a clinician to say, you should use this device, it is better for patient care, better information for you, and will reduce the number of times we kill patients by giving them the wrong script. You know, basically what you're telling a physician is what you've done for the last 30 years is substandard. They don't get often the fact that this is new technology, so don't, don't beat yourself up for the last 30 years. But same things happen with CardioDX. We go in and tell the physician that this genomic test is often better than the imaging technologies they have. And what they hear is, I'm not practicing the best medicine. And so there is a, a reluctance at that point. That's number one. Number two, the FDA, rightly or wrongly, has stayed out of the diagnostic space and yet are fully engaged in the therapeutic and the device space. So when you come to a, with, a with a diagnostic and they say, is it FDA approved? And you say, no, it doesn't need to be. All they hear is no. And so then there's a question of what's the clinical kind of utility. And so there's lots of papers we have to write and those kinds of things. And the third piece um, is really on the reimbursement side. And that's true of, of most healthcare, even more so of the diagnostic space. We could be selling, my estimate is, 10 times more tests than we are today. Um, selling in the, i.e., the physicians are ordering it, but I don't want to do that because the payers yet aren't yet on board to pay for the tests. So in terms of a capital need that James is talking about, every time I run the test and it doesn't get paid for because the insurance company says thanks but no thanks, you know, that's a cost that we bear. And so there is a big financial incentive to limit adoption until you get the reimbursement piece done. Once those problems get addressed, and maybe they'll take a while to do that, talk a little bit about the business model. Because the business model here seems really attract attractive because the development cost is far less than the therapeutic. Yeah. The odds of success are far higher. But you get similar sort of you know, life cycle you know, le lengths, and you can charge a good amount for it. Yeah, so it it's, it's one of the things that, that really attracted me to the whole new molecular diagnostic space. Just to give you a sense, it was exactly two years from the day we enrolled our first patient in a, our prospective trial, which is really the, the, the key clinical trial, the time we're on the market. So two years versus 10, 20 years. So you can do it in a, in a much shorter space. It's not cheap. You know, we spent almost 40 to $5 million to get product one to market. That counts the cul-de-sacs and dead ends we went down. But, but you know, it, it's, not, it's, not very, it's not particularly cheap. Uh, and the business model is, if you can provide better care to the clinicians and be cost-effective for the payers, this should be adopted broadly in the industry. Now, what does adopted mean? Does that mean you have to be on everybody's guidelines? Just means you've got lots of users? You know, any one of those things w would qualify. And the upside is, is huge. Genomic Health is, has, has proven that they can, be, they can really change the standard of care in, in, um, in breast cancer. Great. Thanks, David. You're welcome. I'd like to you know, move on to Bala here. Balamanian is one of the most prolific and successful inventors in the life sciences field mm -hmm. around imaging, optics, and diagnostics. He's been the founder or driving force behind a half, more than a half dozen companies, maybe even more. I probably couldn't count them okay. all, and holds more than 30 patents. And I can safely say Bala is the only person at this conference who has won an Academy Award. <laughs> yeah, which, which he won for a, in digital, advances in digital cinematography. His latest venture is Reometrics, and I want to come back to that because I think Reometrics is very interesting both from the technology side, but frankly from the business model and the innovation side as well. But before getting in Reometrics, I was wondering if you just might talk a little bit about you know, one or two of the other ventures you've been involved in and sort of the impact that that's had in the medical field. Um. I guess I could start with, uh, you know, my entry into the whole area of life science yeah. was an 
accidental event uh, as talking about yeah. both of them saying, you know, one coming from the medical side, the other from the business side, whereas in, in my case, I had nothing to do with, uh, you know, I, in some of the talks I give, my life is one of contradictions. And uh, I started out and I aspired to be an academician and joined uh, the faculty at the University of Rochester and then fell a victim to the exuberance of materialistic affluence and uh, <laughs> left the academic world and came to Silicon Valley in 1975. So basically, I, was, I started working on writing images onto film, and I've done quite a bit of work in that area. And accidentally, I found out that there was an unmet need in the area of uh, medical imaging, of taking digital data and writing it onto film. That's how I got into uh, medical imaging. And uh, so I helped develop the first generation of uh, uh, laser film recorders for medical imaging. And that has fundamentally changed the way in which the images are being presented to a radiologist and taking the depth of information that is generated in the computer and presented. I mean, today, you can't find any other technology. Every, every image that you see in any digital modality, whether it's a CT, MRI, or any of that, and I could say, hey, you know, I, I had a role to defining that 30 years ago. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about Reometrics. I mean, I know a little bit about the company, and it's really fascinating on multiple dimensions. A little bit of the original concept of Reometrics, what products you're developing, and talk a little bit about the innovation model within the company as sure. well. Sure. Um, you know, uh, one of the advantages that I have is that I've been in Silicon Valley since 1975. Mm -hmm. And what motivated me to think out and actually think in terms of going to India is that um, I looked at everybody looking at developing part of the world mm -hmm. in either they had an approach to looking at it from a charitable point of view, social entrepreneuring, things of that nature, or a cost arbitrage model, or what can I go and save money getting things done over there? Um, you know, David Kelly uh, of Design School from Stanford, uh, I've known him for a long time, and there's one statement that he had made that probably had more impact on me is, Innovation starts at how you frame the problem. So I looked around and I said, you know, I started my first company with $350,000 investment. This is in 1980. Today, that pays two weeks worth of payroll, maybe, when you start a company. And that's just not sufficient. And that it really, the opportunity exists in India to be able to do what I did 30 years ago. So the question really is, what can you do there you cannot do anymore here? And then combine that with the statement that David Kelly did is, let's define the problem, frame the problem in terms of how do you solve, develop technology to address the bottom of the pyramid? And then by definition, if you have the cost economics worked out, then you have a solution that's not just for the bottom of the pyramid, but for the rest of the pyramid as well. So that was the motivation with which Reometrics got started. Mm -hmm. And uh, it has been a really fascinating experience 
because um, defining the problem from the developing world point of view has opened up innovation opportunities that would have never been possible if I had done the same thing here in Silicon Valley. So if you could talk a little bit, one of the things that's interesting about Rio Metrics is you have a foot in San Carlos in Silicon Valley and another even bigger footprint in, in Bangalore. Talk a little bit about the cultural differences between innovation in Silicon Valley and the yeah. types of people who do it here and managing innovation in India. Yeah. Um, I, I would say that probably this is the most difficult challenge I have faced. Yeah. Um, I would say that uh, um, as much I, I felt that because I had been successful in Silicon Valley, that I ought to be able to take what I learned here and translate that to India. That was the most unmitigated disaster <laughs> that I ever encountered because the tendency in the eastern part of the world is not just India. I think this is true of Asia. I was in Singapore on Monday running a workshop over there. The tendency to want to own the task rather than own the problem. And that if you really are talking about uh, innovation, you have to own the problem. Mm -hmm. And second thing is, failure is inherent in the process of exploration. I continually tell the people, if you're afraid of heights, you will never be a mountain climber. And the concept of facing and accepting failure is amazingly absent in that part of the world because the competitive nature of their upbringing and et cetera. Even the society, they don't want to face failure. And um, without carrying through that barrier, it's been a real problem. So while it has been very cost effective to try different things in that part of the world, the innovation spirit has been lacking because of the inability to face failure. One last question, and this is around assuming Rheometrics is successful in developing the diagnostic box that, you, that you're working on now. What do you see as the barriers to adoption in India? Yeah. And particularly around how medicine is practiced differently in India than it is in the developed world. Yeah. Um, and, and in fact, it's been a really a fascinating uh, understanding. In, you know, in, in the West, that people who go into medicine go to medicine uh, after an undergraduate degree and quite a bit of uh, scientific uh, training and so on. Whereas in the British system, people actually go right out of uh, high school and, and their undergraduate program itself is into medicine. So what you find is that what you assume in this part of the world in terms of how medicine is practiced is very different from the medicine practice over there. They are much more clinicians than um, quantitative medicine uh, focused. And therefore, trying to, whatever the solutions that you're gonna provide, and to put it in the context that in which they practice medicine, and and, and I have a way of saying that um, you have to think like a biologist and act like a biologist, okay, in a way that you, you serve their unmet needs, and the same thing applies to medicine in that part of the world. Great, thank you. Uh, Don, if we can have you back clean up here. <laughs> is Don Joseph is the uh, Chief Operating Officer for BioVentures for Global Health, which is a, a nonprofit that has the audacious mission 
of trying to create basically the environment and incentive system to get biotech, pharmaceutical, diagnostics, companies to develop drugs for unmet and underserved uh, global health conditions. And it was interesting just thinking through, look, the backgrounds. We have James from med medicine and science. We have uh, David who came up through business, Bala kind of through optics and science, and Don through law. So I think we have a lot of different routes to end up in this industry. And Don, I thought you know, it would be interesting if you could talk both the transition from law you know, into the biotechnology field, and then more, I think more so from going from for-profit, and actually Don worked with James and worked with a number of other successful companies in the biotechnology industry, and then going into the nonprofit sphere, and whether you, you know, both why you made that transition and whether you think for people who are considering going into nonprofit later on, if it makes sense to start off on the for-profit side. Sure, happy to, and uh, I can't back clean up because these guys hit it out of the park already. So, uh, <laughs> I'll take it from there. Uh, my, my past is even more sorted because I have a solid humanities background before law school. So uh, I, I was literally inarticulate uh, in the life sciences through my uh, schooling. Uh, but what I've, I was always interested in it and wanted to work with it. My law practice had involved it somewhat peripherally, but again, not, not any great degree until about 10 or 12 years into my career. And what I decided, Rob, was that uh, the great thing about being in a law firm is you, is you touch a lot of different projects in, in many different industries, and that's a great thing. But what ultimately I found to be frustrating was you don't really get embedded in any, in any project. You get in you get, and do a deal or provide advice or, or a structure or, or solve a problem, and then they move on and keep doing what they're doing, and you're left to, to start over and, and work again with someone new. There's many parts of that that are fun, but ultimately, to me, it was frustrating. I wanted to get in and get my hands dirty and really be a part of something. So I, I uh, consciously looked out for an opportunity in the life sciences, uh, again, partly through serendipity, as, as has been said before. I had the chance, uh, knowing sitting in an office in San Francisco, the odds were that life would take me either toward life science or technology, and my preference was on the life science side because I, I saw the potential for impact. This is when companies like Genentech and Amgen and others were making a huge difference in the world and opening up all kinds of opportunities. And although, again, I didn't have the scientific training, I really wanted to be a part of that. So I made the jump uh, roughly 15 years after my law career began uh, into a neuroscience company here locally called Athena Neurosciences. And uh, we worked on Alzheimer's disease and epilepsy and MS and, and other things. And I found it hugely fulfilling to be able to learn about that. So Ongoing learning was fantastic, and also to have to watch these drugs go through a process, get approved, and, and begin to change people's lives. So I'd, I was in the industry side of things for another 15 years or so, in uh, initially legal roles and then beyond into business roles, corporate development, business development, um, operating roles of one type and another. Um, and again, I found personally, my it was time for me to try something new, to come at the industry from a different direction, and. I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to do that initially with a group called One World Health, which develops drugs but for neglected diseases, um, and in that particular case, things like malaria, leishmaniasis, and some other things. Um, so again, I was challenged by learning something new, seeing the industry in a different way, putting uh, what little skill I had to use from a different direction, and uh, again, the chance to make an impact in a, in a different way, and to challenge myself. Oh, the second part of your question, sorry, just real quick. So 
having said that, I would say that I, I, my personal advice, generically or in the abstract, is it's far more helpful, and it'd be interesting to hear James's viewpoint on this later, but I think it's far more helpful to get a functional skill, learn it and, and acquire it, and then you can go out and market yourself with that skill as opposed to taking kind of the kumbaya approach, I really want to help, what can I do? Um, I'm really excited, I'm really motivated. Now, admittedly, the world is different today than when I did this even a short time ago, much less a long time ago, and, and I wouldn't say this is absolute. But I do think that, that anyone interested in the nonprofit sphere would be well served to get a, a functional skill and training because just as Brooke Byers always said, a small company is not a training ground, I can guarantee you the nonprofit world is not a training <laughs> ground. So you're not gonna get guidance and mentorship from a functional point of view anywhere near the depth that you would uh, even in smaller companies, much less larger companies such as Genentech uh, that can offer that to you. Um, and then translate that into, for one, you'll know your sphere better. You'll know where you potentially can make a play, have an impact, and, and then look into whether nonprofit is right for you. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the mission of BVGH. What are you trying to accomplish, and what are the organization's goals? Sure. What, we're, what we want to do, very simply, is bring the innovation of biotech to global health and neglected disease work. Uh, if you look at the numbers, over the last 10 years, roughly half of the new drugs approved in the United States uh, have come from the biotech side of the, of the industry as opposed to pharmaceutical companies. That number's only gonna go up year over year as, as the big pharma pipelines um, are, are challenged and the biotech techniques take hold and pay off more and more and more. So mu much of the innovation in, in drug development generally is coming from the biotech sector. We think it's far underrepresented, and we know it's far underrepresented in the global health sphere and what we're trying to do is to, to break down some of the barriers that keep the biotech sector from having a greater involvement in global health. We think that innovation comes from two primary directions. You can't innovate unless you have information, unless you have an incentive. And those are the two things that we try to provide assistance to biotech companies in assessing potential opportunities in global health. The, the information side, we have content on our website. We provide information about neglected diseases through our global health primer. Um, that you can look at both from a disease point of view and also from a target or pathway point of view if you're a biotech company wondering how you can get involved. And incentives, we've worked on things like the Priority Review Voucher, which is a very elegant tool. I, I won't describe it fully, but it's, a, it's an incentive to a biotech company to get a drug approved for a neglected disease because it lets you then shorten the review time for any other drug that you have or, they, or you can sell that voucher to a third party. Um, so information and incentives for global health aimed at the biotech sector is what we're all about. How much success have you had yet? Because I understand why the large companies are getting into this. Because, you know, the Merck's, the GlaxoSmithKline's, they have a global reach. They see a big market in emerging markets. You know, and they also have, for many reasons, a PR reason that they want to get into, into global health. The smaller companies, you know, I know you're working on the incentives, but how much success has there been for smaller companies and what do you think is really gonna be sort of the change that has to happen there for there to be far more of the smaller, more innovative companies working in the field? Well, it's, it's a real challenge, Rob, you're right. And let, let me take a local example to illustrate the situation a little bit. There's a company up the road called Anacor. Anacor has a specific uh, chemistry, boron chemistry platform yeah. that they use uh, to develop drugs with potential commercial application mm -hmm. in a couple of different areas. They have partnerships with GlaxoSmithKline. 
and they're a very prototypical, uh, recently public, initially venture-backed, small biotech company. But what they have that many other biotech companies don't have is a developed portfolio where their chemistry platform can be used for neglected diseases. So they have an advanced collaboration in human uh, African trypanosomiasis, HAT, sleeping sickness, that's about to bear fruit and pay off. And the way that they've convinced their board, uh, who are a very typical venture board, very keen on return, very keen on resource, very keen on the business model that, that they have in front of them, the way that they've convinced their board is if we can do this on a cost-neutral basis without interfering with our commercial platform, we can then make a difference in the world in these areas where it's so desperately needed. And they've accomplished that through partnerships with nonprofit groups such as DNDI, Drugs for Neglected Disease Initiative, uh, and Gates Funding that have allowed them to reach cost neutrality. And the, and the potential carrot or selling point, too, is to say this will, this will help inform our chemistry platform. It will read on our technology and assist us in the development of our commercial products. Just one last question. How did, you know, measuring nonprofit, you know, success in a nonprofit's always hard. Measuring it in some place like, you know, BVGH, where you're trying to create an environment rather than doing a specific product is even harder. How does the organization measure success? We don't do that anymore. We just try to have fun. <laughs> no, that's, that's a joke for Rob, who's on my board. Uh, the... Uh, it, it, I would say, Rob, it depends on the program because, for example, in the, in the priority review voucher setting, uh, we measure success by how many vouchers are issued and how many have been uh, utilized. And, and the answer to that one quickly is one has been issued and it has not yet been utilized. And that tells us that that program needs more clarity. So we're working on that with the FDA to try to smooth out some of the speed bumps. In our incentives program, the, which is nascent you know, on the drawing board, the answer will be if we can get traction with a sponsor to fund the development of a point-of-care diagnostic tool uh, for differential diagnosis of fever, which is what that incentive is about, then that's a huge success right there. And getting developers to enter a competition to generate that diagnostic tool uh, will also be a measure of success. But you're right. We, we deal in ideas. Uh, we're not a development company per se. We don't have drugs in our pipeline or diagnostics uh, to be able to measure sales or revenues from. Uh, and, it, and it is challenging, but with the advent of venture philanthropy and some of the metrics and techniques that are now used in our sector generally, we, we think we're, we, we can track our progress. Great. Thanks. Uh, I'm going to open it up to questions in a few minutes, so everybody get ready. This is going to be the audience participation por portion of the program in a minute. But I just, while you're thinking of your question, I want to prime with one or two questions for the panel. My first question is... You know, in the areas that you're working in right now, what are one or two trends that may not be obvious to the casual observer, but is really going to impact the field over the next five to ten years? Well, I, I, can, I can actually talk about it. I think um, having spending the amount of time that I'm spending both in India and in Africa, yeah. uh, fundamentally, uh, I would say that a mindset needs to change in the sense we've always thought about um, healthcare delivery or healthcare as an economic burden. And what we are not really looking at is actually an opportunity to create economic activity. And I think that the key here is to run the healthcare just like the way you would run any other services that you would do in, in uh, 
in economics. Mm -hmm. And so fundamentally what Rheometrics is trying to do is to first define both affordability and access mm -hmm. and then define what is the appropriate technology that's going to allow you to deliver the goods and services within that affordability index. Mm -hmm. So if you do it that way and you also do it in a way there is a compelling economics at the local level in terms of value add, in terms of income generation, mm -hmm. then the people who make the income generation have the goods to sell, buy the goods and services you're trying to mm -hmm. sell. I think you know, the concept of microfinancing applied to healthcare is more or less going to be the new model. 87% of all healthcare dollars spent in India comes out of individuals' pockets. So you don't focus on what the third-party reimbursement is. You really think about what is the discretionary uh, expenditure that they can have, and then you develop the technology to work within those economic constraints. I think this approach, what Rheometrics is doing, is I think is going to, if we are successful in breaking through all the barriers that we see, I think it will be a different way to do that. If you can do a diagnostics for less than $10, who cares where, who, what the reimbursement is? And the idea is the technology is there to be able to deliver that today. I guess I was going to say, I think there's an economic squeeze play that's going to happen within the healthcare industry because of two trends that you're all very much aware of, and that's aging and obesity. These are by far the most important trends that are going to affect not only within the developed world, but also within the developing world as well. And the reason that these particular trends are particularly potent is because they're both post-evolutionary, and that is that our own mechanisms for fighting disease don't work very well because we weren't designed to have 40% body fat and we weren't designed to live longer than 25 or 35 years, and yet both things are occurring in rampant increase in our society. And so because of that, the medicines have to actually enter into a biology they've never had to enter into before. So this combined with the fact that both these trends take people out of the workforce, which reduces the GDP, if you want, of the country, generates the squeeze play because the amount of money a society is willing to spend on healthcare as a percentage of GDP has to go up with those two trends. And yet the amount of money it's willing to spend as a percentage of GDP is capped by some reasonable economic number. And all that means is that pricing power is going to go down for the pharmaceutical industry and for healthcare in general, which comes back to the, think, the issues that both Val and David and I were talking about, which is efficiency or effectiveness turns out to be far more important than the actual cost, uh, than the actual cost. You have to be able to show that what you do truly makes a difference for patients. In the past, you could get by with minimal benefits, but I think what you're going to find over the next five to ten years is that's going to be replaced by having to have drugs and diagnostics that dramatically change the way patients are managed. We're starting to see this at the FDA now, and this is the part that you may not be aware of, is for the first time, in the last year for the first time, the CMS guys, they're involved in pricing, are sitting in with the FDA guys on product approval. Now, they came to those meetings under a part of the uh, of governmental regulation which allows them to see non-approved drugs, quote, in order to get the ball rolling for eventual CMS approval. But I think we should all be aware that the reason they're there is because one of the biggest toxicities we're going to see of drugs going forward is price. We're seeing this at Genentech with Avastin where there's a lot of pressure on the company with regards to how much it charges for its drug, but this is going to be true for every pharmaceutical and biotech company. And I think that companies that can face this head on by being more efficient 
in terms of the way they develop drugs and more efficient in the way they spend money are the ones that are going to eventually win. I, I want to add Just one comment, and I, the comment that you made. In the United States today, there are 65,000 people who are 100 years or older. The oldest person died at the age of 114 four weeks ago. And those people retired between the age of 58 to 62. I don't think they ever thought that they were going to live long, that long. No. I mean, so to a large extent, we may need to change the shift of focus in managing patients. Instead of focusing on illness, how do we maintain wellness? Well, and I think that, you know, I always say if I was 30 years younger, I would focus on how do you use technology to have people actively engage in productive contribution to society, because all of us have to do that for a long period of time than we had originally We're, we're fixated on, it's fascinating, we're fixated on 65 roughly as a retirement age, and when that was put in place in Germany in the mid-1800s, the average lifespan was four years. We only live four <laughs> years past your retirement. Now, as you point out, the average lifespan is 20, 30 years, and it's only getting longer and longer. And so, can a country really afford to have that many retired people? Are people not productively contributing to the GDP? I don't think so. I think we have to go back in some ways to the way it was even before that, where people just continued to work. And the idea of retirement at 65 uh, just is, a, is an idea that, is, that can't be afforded these days. I'd like to mention a trend that I see coming from another direction, and maybe this is a little bit of a wishful thought, but along with globalization and the integration of world markets and the, and the emerging power of the, of the BRIC countries and others, comes a desire on the part of those countries to make lives better for their own people. And I think that means addressing neglected diseases, which affect billions worldwide. Last year, uh, total global health spending on neglected diseases was about $3.2 billion. Pfizer alone spent more than double that in their R&D. And that's not at all a criticism of Pfizer. That's simply to say that not nearly enough money is being spent on neglected disease research. And it's been too easy to ignore that segment of the population and of the world. But again, as integration happens, as boundaries blur, as travel increases, and as markets become more attractive, even to the, to the US and, and European-based and Japanese companies, they will have an incentive to be more interested in solving those local problems in, in those countries. They'll be more affected by it, they'll have more at stake, and there, there'll be more of a reason. Uh, and again, I hope that's true. Uh, well, let me add, add two comments. One is leveraging off of something that James said for the non-MD PhDs in the audience. What he, what he said in the beginning, I've known James for a long time, if I can translate, is for obesity and diabetes, Darwin doesn't matter. We get those disease after we've had children. Yeah. And so natural selection doesn't work in terms of weeding out the weak ones. Um, he said it much more elegantly than that. But, 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 but so, so we have a fundamentally different medical problem than we've ever had before. Um, and the only other comment I'd make is, I think particularly to the U.S. healthcare system, one of the fundamental changes is we're going to have to figure out who are the gatekeepers to our healthcare. We can't continue to spend at the rate that we're spending on it. Just, it, it doesn't work. It blows up very quickly. Is it the primary care physician that is the gatekeeper? Is it the specialist who knows it how to treat that disease? Or is it the payer? And today it's a combination and a very awkward combination of all three of those. And I think one of the things we need to do as a society is figure out where we're going to make those decisions. Do we go to the English system where you know, a governmental body makes some of those decisions about what we can afford to spend, or do we let it you know, happen in the, in the free market system? And I think that's going to be a very fascinating thing to watch over the next 10 years. You know, one of the comments that I want to make is that often you think of the developing world or the bottom of the pyramid and you think about it only from a 
technology innovation point of view. It is also an opportunity to create new economic models. For example, uh, you can't go in and talk about an incentive-based healthcare delivery in this world. I mean, I would be driven out of uh, any discussions at any point. Whereas, because so much of healthcare delivery comes out of pocket, you can begin to think in terms of incentive-based mechanisms with regard to the cost of healthcare that they get. And one of the approaches we're looking at in India is India tremendously, uh, there's a cost, the idea of savings is so prevalent. And uh, you know, India saves, the savings rate is north of 20%. So the idea is, instead of, similar to credit card score, can you think in terms of a wellness score, that the wellness score actually impacts the amount of savings that they get, because you're simply arbitraging the long-term interest rates versus uh, short-term interest rate. And if somebody has a very high wellness score, then it's a long-term deposit into their medical savings account. So essentially use diagnostics as a way of assessing the risk arbitrage and on an actuarial basis, how somebody manages this. And from a banking point of view, from an insurance point of view, this is a well-established practice. But those kinds of concepts cannot be applied in the healthcare context. And a place like the developing world may actually be wonderful incubation areas to try these different business models. And once we, they work over there, we can bring them back over here. Yeah, they can That's, teach us. It's a very yeah. interesting yeah. idea. And yeah. it'd be interesting to see if it develops where diagnostics for prevention become more prevalent there, Absolutely. whereas here, diagnostics are really Absolutely. more for treatment decisions. Yeah. And in fact, I think I'll go one step further than that. And well, I talked about managing old age. And I would say today, we have the technology by which we can actually proactively warn a person living by themselves, saying something the way in which they, they walk, the way their face looks when they go shave a, in front of a mirror. Uh, you can actually be proactive in saying, from a preventive point of view, rather than waiting for the clinical symptoms to develop. Mm -hmm. I think we need to take a different approach to maintenance of wellness rather than just focusing on illness. And I think technology is going to have a role to play there. Um, you know, it's a simple equation of calories in versus calories out. And I've got a tool that tells me every text my children send to me every day, but I don't have a tool that says how many calories do I burn by walking around and exercising and running the dog and what I ate. And if those tools are close, they're not quite here yet. But you know, I look at the menus and say this is 600 calories or 700. I mean, if you have the data, I fundamentally believe you will change their behavior. We don't have the data today, and I think that's where technology will help us. Dan, there is a program in Stanford called Steptastic with Accenture, mm -hmm. that they have a program in which that you actually get a pedometer, and then depending on how many steps you take, yep. you are a platinum, gold, or so on, mm -hmm. and then the points you win are actually used to play a game yep. in which you win dollars. Mm -hmm. So there's a fantastic program. I think comes out of the computer science program. And so I think the tools are there they're, to be able to do that. So, so I, I have to put a pitch in here for a company I'm on the board of called Hope Lab, which has just spun out a company called Zamzi, which is doing exactly the thing, same thing. Zamzi is a pedometer that you give to kids. And if the kids run around, they get points within the 
pedometer, which I download to the computer, and it allows them to go to further levels on a game. So this is not money. These are kids. So what they're interested in doing is going to the next level. It's kind of like Farmville, but in order to get further on, you have to walk around. And they did a clinical trial with, uh, with children between the ages of 8 and 14, all of them obese, all of them with BMIs uh, over 30. So these are, these are reasonably obese kids. They all increased their amount of walking or running to the equivalent of one marathon per month based on ZAMSI, and they loved it. And so here's a device, to go back to what David's saying, and, and you're mentioning for Stanford, and it's a simple device. I mean, these things are in every iPhone um, that allows you to measure that, and people are changing their behavior. I think in some ways that's going to do more for health than any type of medication we can come up with for obesity or as an exercise mimetic pharmaceutical. Professor Chess, thank you. Um, thank you for your comments, which come from, I guess, a lot of experience and looking at it from the other end of the tunnel. I think there are some of us here who are at this end of the tunnel thinking of starting enterprises, building a company. And I have a particular question in the diagnostic sphere. And um, we had a speaker early on uh, from Proteus, I think, who talked about making um, medicine available to all. And some of us, we're trying to do that in cancer diagnostic. And we want to deal with data, patient data. And we have a choice to make at this stage as to whether we go in and try and um, seek cooperations with established um, big medical device companies who are very proprietary about the data they keep or build something ourselves and take the risk that it will not be adopted, that there are layers and layers of uh, purchases within the system we'll have to persuade to get it adopted. And as a starting company, as, as, a, as a nascent company, how do you think about this? I mean, do you really bite the bullet and go down partnerships with the G's and the Siemens of this world, or do you stick it out and try and create something that you think is really good and take the risk that it will never be adopted? And probably, David and James, you may have thought about this in your views, and if you could just help give us some guidance on that. Yeah, My guess I, is everybody's going to have something to chime yeah, in on this one. I, I, can, I, can, I can chime in. Um, you know, data and the clinical samples that you use, which is the raw materials for the development of a diagnostic, are absolutely the most important decision you will probably make in the life of the company. Um, and our philosophy has been go out and find if those samples with the clinical data already exist, but be prepared for the chance that it's very unlikely that they will be in exactly the same form you want with all of the clinical data. So there is a hybrid approach that we took, which I think at least worked for us, which is we went and found a couple of small cohorts of patients that gave us some early looks at the science and the data to see whether directionally we were correct. But once we got that proof of concept to some extent, we had to do it all ourselves because we could never collect exactly the right patients with all the right clinical data and the samples handled properly. Um, and even if all of that existed in a large pharma or medical device company, as you pointed out, their reluctance to share it with you is very, very high. And so I think, I think you should try going down that path because it's a lot cheaper, but I think you should prepare with a backup plan for doing it yourself because the, the chance of success there is going to be low. I, I think, uh, you know, since I've been down this path over the last 35 years and six companies, uh, each one of them went to a certain point and I believe in evolution in the sense either you be eaten or you eat. So, unfortunately, in, in all the companies that I started, they went public and then be eaten or they were eaten before they went public. So, 
to a large extent, I really believe that in, in the space that you are really talking about, two, two points that I want to make. One is we always think in terms of the data has to come from here. Uh, biggest revelation that I had was in the last company before Rheometrics that I did in Silicon Valley, it took me six months to collect data on CD4 counts on HIV patients. It takes me two weeks in India to collect the same amount of data. So, and the cost of collecting data, data is very different. So I think oftentimes we do, Ken Malman used to be the dean at the School of Medicine here, used to say, you look for lost key under the, the light. And so true in medicine. We tend to be operating where we are already have information. Yep. Sometimes putting yourself into a different situations opens up opportunities. So I think in trying to address the question that you asked, I would say that maybe the pathways that we have followed in the last three decades <laughs> may not be the pathway that's going to work for the next decade, and we need to think out of the box of how do we go about doing this. I have one comment to make. I think that within, I can speak to the therapeutic area, um, it's really clear that the most um, the most common way companies in therapeutic areas fail is because the drugs don't work. It's attrition. 9% of molecules that start into development make it in, onto the market. That's a remarkably low number. And so everything that one does as a CEO of a company that's in therapeutic should be to increase that probability. If you can raise enough money that you can do proper clinical development with companion diagnostics, I would recommend companies do it on their own and partner as late as possible. It gives you control, you maximize the value, it's your baby. On the other hand, these days you can't do that, and so forming partnerships early on is the only way not to erode that probability of success. Because if you start cutting corners in discovery and in development, I will guarantee you the probability is going to go down. And if it starts going down any further than that nine percent, you've got a business that just by, by just by dint of statistics is very unlikely to work. So, kind of a non-traditional point of view on this would be and maybe I didn't understand the question fully, but I think the first question you ask yourself is, what do you want to do? Uh, because if you're out to make money, then everything that's been said is exactly right. And even if you're not out to make money, what's been said is right. Because you do, you do have to validate the data. I'm not making a lot of money. What are the other cases that are left here? Well, but where I'm headed is, if you think about PLOS, for example, is, is an open source literature kind of uh, resource. So the basic question is, do you want to make, make revenue or not? If at some point you don't care about that or your backers don't care about that, then you might explore different kinds of models. So there's a company called Napo Pharmaceuticals, for example, and they're a little bit of a hybrid. They're developing a drug for uh, AIDS-related diarrhea. And the way that they went about their partnering program, they definitely have partners and they definitely are a for-profit entity, but they signed up their global health partners first in China and, and in India and then they found their commercial partner for U.S. and Europe. Now, that is definitely an upstream approach, but it was an approach that the board uh, was willing to back because they felt that the global health need was so great, and that was actually their, their priority. So there might be more than one way of thinking about it from a model point of view, but certainly uh, any sort of revenue-driven uh, exit strategy type of model uh, involves everything that's been said. But if, you, if you're a little more open to a non-revenue or exit, uh, you might consider some of these other ideas. 
Thank you for uh, joining us uh, at the conference today. Um, I wanted to ask, um, given how hard it is to get drugs approved, and part of the reason is navigating the FDA and some of the regulatory approval processes, do you think the U.S. is bound to lose its leadership position in medical innovation? And what I mean is in developing game-changing innovative therapies that are often the most expensive to develop. And if so, what do you think, what do you propose as solutions to prevent this loss of leadership? Um, so, so I'm going to answer that question. No is the answer. We're, <laughs> we're not going to lose our, our leadership position. In fact, most of the pharmaceutical companies are placing their research and development units in the United States from other countries uh, because of the clarity that they have that the best science that's going on right now is in the United States by a long shot. Now, I think that both China and India are are ramping up, but in, in terms of true innovative science that has generated medicines, they are way behind us, and I think we should make that clear. To your question about the FDA, the probability that a drug gets approved by the FDA once an, a new drug application is being, has been put in front of them is about 80% right now. So there's a lot of um, crinkled paper and a lot of crinkled psyches around the FDA in our industry, and I think that it's time that we combine our discussion with the FDA with some inward looking about what kind of drugs we're making. And in fact, the best way to get a drug approved in the FDA is to give them data that either increases survival or, or, or decrease, increases survival or increases the quality of life of a patient with the disease. If you do that, the FDA will approve your drug. They're not likely to, to not approve it at this point because of price solely. But the discussion becomes one of what is the amount of benefit that they're willing to pay for. And that, I think, is going, to be, is going to continue to be a discussion with them. But I think the main issue in our industry, and most of the failures that occur, occur for scientific reasons before we ever get to the FDA. And the reason for that is because we don't understand enough biology, frankly. And the more biology we understand, and the better we are about being able to use our biological understanding with diagnostics to choose who responds to a drug, the better drug is going to be put in front of the FDA. I think the FDA is going to do what it's always been it's done since its inception in the 1930s, and it's going to swing with political pressures one way or the other. And there are things it does that I don't agree with, and, there, and I can give you some specific examples if you wish. But on the other hand, I think the, the larger lever we can pull is actually building better drugs. But James, do, do political borders matter anymore? Genentech being a great example, I think 13 straight phase three trials that succeeded and worked. You know, South San Francisco based, owned by a company. I mean, does, does it matter where you're domiciled anymore? It doesn't matter where you're domiciled. What matters is where the scientists are. And so my point that the United States is going to play this important role in research and development is because most of the good research and development in the pharmaceutical sector is occurring within the boundaries of this country. Novartis has decided to move all of its research to Boston. It has very little left in Basel, although it's a Basel-based company. Roche has decided to, uh, to focus its energies in research and development in California and in Basel as well as putting in a major effort in Shanghai. But frankly, in comparison to what we're doing here, it's a, it's a drop in the bucket. You know, James, to support what you said, I would actually put the biggest source is not the pharmaceutical companies setting up their research facilities. It's the 20 to $30 billion NIH funding. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's where the seed yep. corn comes yep. from. Yep. And there is no other country can no. compete even no. remotely closely. Yeah the generation of the seed corn that yeah. leads to. I mean, pharma companies actually spend more dollars on D, not an R, and yes. uh, I think it's very important to recognize 
that you know in the rest of the world the, the seed corn comes from R&D funding from the government in the United States whether it's neglected diseases or advanced diseases or that's where the source of information is. I'm frankly more concerned that Americans aren't going into science and medicine as much as they were before. Yeah. Um, yeah. The good news is that the people who are in the rest of the world are coming here so <laughs> yeah. at least for some time. Just need to make it a little easier for them. Yes, yeah, very much so. <laughs> I wanted to ask a question about personalized medicine. Uh, when do you think we'll see genomic information being integrated into electronic medical records? And if obviously it's not there now, but when do you think that might happen? And what is it going to take for that transition to happen where it becomes actionable for providers? I'll take the, the first cut. I mean, another way to ask that question is when are we going to have electronic medical records? I mean, when is the healthcare system? you know, going to generate, you know, the kind of efficiencies that the rest of us do, you know, in managing our music. Um, you know, Palo Alto Medical Foundation, you know, middle of Silicon Valley, well-funded, they were late to the game yeah. on, on the electronic medical record. So I think, it, I think it's a long way to go. But I, I think the, the key question you asked is, when is it actionable? And that's why I am challenged with some of the personalized medicine models that are more on the consumer side, 23andMe and Navigenics know those folks well. I know I should exercise more. I know I should eat better. Getting a genetic test isn't going to change my behavior. So I think it all has to be around the actionable piece. And then that's what sort of what we're focused on. Um, and it's, personalized medicine is, you shouldn't think about as a blockbuster. We're not gonna have everybody do everything simultaneously. It's very much taking million patient populations and cutting them down into 100 to 200,000 patient populations that I will treat this 100,000 differently than this 100,000 than this 100,000. So it's going to be brick by brick. I, I think it's going to be very evolutionary and not revolutionary, genomic health being one. But I think there's going to be lots of little niches that are, and we're going to turn around someday and say, boy, we really are in the age of personalized medicine, even though it never hit us over the head. Foss, Mike, um, the answer to your question is, I think we, having been part of genomics companies and so on. I think we tend to always think of in a very narrow sense. You know, the way that I think it's important to look at, disease is a process. Disease is not a state. And that it is important not only to know whether the process onset has occurred, but where you are in that process. My own sense is that it is not going to be just genomic data. It may be proteins, it may be the metabolic uh, parameters, that you have to make measurements at multiple level to not just look for your predisposition for getting the disease or even the onset of the disease, but actually know where you are. So the treatment processes that one would undertake would be very, very different. We, the way we look at diagnostics have to fundamentally change. It has to be thought of as instrumentation in a petrochemical industry. You don't just go and look at raw material going into the factory, but you are monitoring at various stages. And I think if we take it from that point of view, in my context, the personalized medicine is really about where are you in that process and what is the right course of treatment that, with which you're going to impact that process. Well, let me add to, to Bala's statement. I, I think it's a fundamentally different way that we think about our health care. We tend to think about our health care like we think about our automobile. We run it until something breaks, we take it to the shop, they take that part out and they put it in a new one and we run it again until it breaks. That's the way we think about healthcare. 
you're exactly right. We need to monitor every day how well is the engine working? Is one cylinder not working? And that's really what personalized medicine is, is monitoring that on a very frequent basis to be able to see the trends and not wait till something breaks. And the only way that's going to happen is we get off this third-party reimbursement for <laughs> diagnostics and really make it such a way that, you know, when you are actually monitoring the functioning of the car, you're not asking whether or not your insurance is going to pay for it. And you do it because that makes sense for you. And I think that's where the, the affordability that is going to drive the delivery of the healthcare. I, I think the other thing, that, so agree with what they've said. So there's going to be a kind of diagnostics that relates to defining your clinical state or defining your physiological state, which is really what you're talking yeah, about. Right. There's another part of diagnostics that's already happening. It's happening both at a protein level and a genomic level, and that is in order to predict who's going to get a drug. So a drug that Genentech and Roche have been working on from Plexicon, which is for malignant melanoma, only works if you have a mutation at residue 600 of a protein that drives that cancer. If you have that V600E mutation, you get the drug, and it does, and it does, some, it does dramatic things for you. If you don't have the mutation, it's a useless drug. So in that sense, those tumors are going to be genomically, quote-unquote, characterized because you're going to be looking at DNA. Um, in fact, I think the future is that there's going to be no drug without a test for it. So we're going to lose our idea of a therapeutic in the absence of a diagnostic. They're going to be flip sides of the same coin, which really changes the way we think about diagnostics. Mm -hmm. We think about diagnostics now as a yield to a therapeutic as a different form of diagnostics, in, in addition to what you're talking about, which are those diagnostics which will allow you to more effectively monitor the clinical and physiological state. Um, thanks. You guys have touched a little bit on the uh, misalignment of incentives in our system, and so I'm wondering how you plan to address uh, some of the misalignment with the doctors, especially around diagnostics. You know, they'd be seeing patients less. Um, and possibly having less revenue from imaging and, and whatnot. Uh, that one sort of pointed at me, so I'll take it first. <laughs> um, so I mean, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating question. We provide a test to clinicians that we, they don't make any money on, so they don't get any fee for either ordering the test or interpreting the test. Um, so it's like prescribing a drug for them. And yet we are competing against a technology and a process and a procedure imaging that they do make money on. So you can imagine that our sales and marketing focus is different for those folks that make money on imaging and those that don't. Uh, it's interesting, the first customer we had was a guy that runs at a very large imaging center in Phoenix. And the reason he was our first and in some respects our best customer is he understands the limitations of imaging. So what we're trying to do is, and it gets back to the personalized medicine question, Genomic and genetic information shouldn't be treated any differently than everything else you know about this patient. And so I think about this as all of these things need to go into the combined knowledge of that physician has for that patient. And what all we're saying is there are lots of times when imaging may not be the right first step or second step, um, use something else first. And, and we've got to convince the physician that that's better patient care. And I fundamentally believe if you convince them it's better patient care, they will put their economics aside. That may be naive, but... What if, what if eventually we started paying for performance? I mean, I think that in the end, there, this is eventually going to go to a situation, and this is going to be, and I'm a big believer this should be true for pharmaceuticals as well. If the drug works, you pay us. If it doesn't, you don't. Now, you have to get really confident about your drugs in order to do that. And as a physician, you'd have to get really confident about your ability to perform care. But if you really want to align incentives, 
have the physicians get paid for how well their patients do. I got an example of that that, that, that I've talked about. In the device world, particularly in the, these implantable defibrillators, beautiful, elegant devices, but we don't know who to put them in, and they only fire in about 20 to 25% of the patients we put them in. I was talking to the senior folks at Medtronic and Guidant in Boston, and they're all trying to eke out another half a percent market share because the devices are all essentially the same. And I said, I can tell you how to get 100% market share tomorrow. And they obviously didn't believe me. And I said, here, James said, don't be paid. Go to CMS and say, don't pay me when the device is put in. Pay me when it fires. And you will have 100% market share tomorrow. Yeah. They didn't take me up on that advice. <laughs> Eventually, I think it's going to have to happen, by the way. I think economically, we don't have any choice. Eventually, it's going to have to align that way. And this goes back to the issue about preventive medicine, about exercise, et cetera. And electronic medical records so that we can define what success is. You know, the, I, I, I would say that another fundamental change in our philosophy after change is somehow we are willing to assign a probability with regard to the way we cross the street. When it comes to medicine, we want to be deterministic. <laughs> and in fact, if you actually look at the way medicine got practiced 150 years ago, physicians made the decision based on observation. The error bar was very large. And the role of diagnostics was to continue to provide information to minimize that error bar. To assume that we're going to eliminate that error bar, if you believe that I own a piece of Golden Gate Bridge, yeah. I'd like to sell that to you. Because I think we are in a mindset, we think in terms of everything to be 100% certain. In fact, the FDA problem is really about not understanding biostatistics. You know, in clinical trials, when you actually think about it, 30% uh, is placebo effect. And in fact, in India, the placebo effect is greater than 50%. So you're really talking about affecting a small percentage of people one way or the other. And even in, meta in diagnostics, we need to be cognizant of the fact that what we are providing, the information we're providing, is we're increasing the probability that the decision being made is the right decision. And so that's, I, that's a very fundamental different approach to looking at managing patients. If you haven't figured it out yet, if you want to go into healthcare, do it, because there's so many problems to solve, you will find one that is very solved. That's correct. That's correct. Being here today, um, James, you mentioned earlier about uh, innovation continuing to occur in the U.S. and uh, various members of the panel supported that assertion that we still continue to be the leader and will continue to be the leader. Um, and then you also made a point about cost being a larger consideration now, uh, which is certainly true. You see examples like the CMS and the FDA sharing more data now. And so I'd like to get some sense for how you see the course of innovation changing, and I ask that because. Uh, one example that I see is a larger emphasis on the D rather than the R with, say, um, branded generics, for example. Uh, and so I'd like to get a sense of what your take on that would be. Thank you. I'll have to first stab at that. I think as, as, the, as, the, as this economic squeeze starts to happen, innovation becomes more powerful because it's the only thing that will retain pricing power. There's no reason we should have Me Too drugs. I'm going to say that I, don't think, I think Me Too drugs are an expense that society can't afford. Why should we spend millions of dollars to build drugs that are fundamentally identical to drugs that already exist? Why don't we, in reality, have a discussion about what the prices should be for drugs that exist? I, don't, I would rather that money get spent on new drugs for new diseases than on simply replicating what we already have. 
The reason people go to Me Too drugs is because they are attached to the thought that Me Too drugs are less risky, which they are. At least less risky to get onto the marketplace. But are they less risky once they get there? That's a decision our society has to make. So I'm a big believer that, uh, that innovation has been important and it's going to get even vastly more important over time as the economic, as the economic squeeze occurs and as pricing power for generics and as pricing power for even drugs that have minimal effects starts, continues to collapse. Sorry, as an auto, but where do you see that? Do you, do you still see innovation happening at the R stage then? I mean, do you see... Oh, absolutely. Sorry. Yeah, and, and R&D, I mean, development, you have to realize that in the pharmaceutical industry, development and research are very closely in yield to one another in the, in the best of companies because development is really that which occurs after you've identified your candidate. And it's a scientific, there are some scientific questions as well as eventually some economic questions you're trying to answer in development. So the companies that are really good at this, the scientists and the developers are talking to one another constantly as the drug is going through its pre-market phase before it makes it onto the market. I think there will continue to be, for those companies that, uh, that will succeed, uh, a, a continued significant expense, 20, 25% of revenue being spent on R&D. I think there's also a couple of trends here to keep in mind, and one is that uh, these things tend to happen in cycles too. So undoubtedly we're in a trough. We've been in troughs before as an industry, and we will be again, which also means, as Greenspan used to say, I know rates will go up, I know they'll fall, and I know they'll stay steady, I just can't tell you when. Uh, so we will have a, a surge in innovation a surge in, in productive research, and the fact of, the, of the, the human genome efforts that there'll be, there'll be surges in different areas, I think that's probably clear, targeted medicine, targeted therapies, the combination of diagnostics with therapeutics. So there'll be different areas of innovation. The, the days of the blockbuster, you know, are not gone, but they're certainly far more limited. So from a business model point of view, certainly at the larger company level, that's why Pfizer's talking about breaking itself down so that their investor expectations are reduced, and, and that's why Amgen is paying a dividend, you know, so that they can get a, another class of investors to pay attention. So, uh, but fundamentally, I mean, I agree with everything that's been set up here in terms of the, the capacity for innovation, the, the, the drive for it, the need for it, the demand for it, because the demand is coming from out there. You know, it's not demand that's internal within the companies. I mean, it, that, that happens, but it happens because it's driven by an insatiable appetite by our country and our colleague countries for, for constantly improved health care. And that's not going to go away. You know, we always think about innovation happening in, in uh, isolation. Um, there's always an enabling technology. You know, whether we talk about genomics, it's a sequencing that in, brought on the concept. It's almost like it's the microscopes that brought in the concept of antibiotics and things of that nature. So there needs to be an enabling technology. And I, the way that I see is that from an uh, embryonic cell-related technologies, for example, GE Healthcare today is actually taking embryonic stem cells and con converting them to hepatocytes and cardiomyocytes so that we can begin to do screening at a human cell level rather than the surrogate animal models or in vitro uh, targets that, that we've used. So there's always some new enabling technology 
that allows somebody to look at the same problem with a different light. And the trough that you're talking about is that when we exhaust that, new innovation begins to come in. So the way that I look at is that some of the cell-based technologies is going to be the foundation on which the new innovation and new ways of doing things is going to happen in this space. I think we have time for one last question. Great. Um, thank you all for being here. Uh, my question is mainly to Don, but maybe James can chime into this too. Um, one big difference with biotech drugs is that, yeah, they've been coming along, you know, great innovation, but they are expensive to make, you know, to produce, you know, to manufacture. And on top of that, you know, in order to get them cheaper, the ideas are with biosimilars, but there's a lot of, um, you know, push and pull going on with the biotechnology companies with, with biosimilars. They're not really similar. They're not the same drug. You know, you cannot get them approved and so forth. So how do you get these biotech drugs that are, expensive now, cheaper, so that, you know, more people in the world can use them and it's, it's available to them? Well, I think, I think Bala answered that. I think the answer is it's the next level of innovation that will allow the fermentation and culturing and, and purification and, and production to scale of, of a biologic product as opposed to a, a little white pill that's made chemically. Uh, we may not have that capability right now, and in fact, that is a big challenge for the delivery of biologics into the developing world. But again, I'm confident that there will be a next level of innovation that will facilitate that because it's in, it's, everyone else, it's everyone's selfish interest to do that in addition to their altruistic interest to do that. You know, I sit on the board of Biocon, which is a very large company with whom it's partnering with all the major companies, Pfizer, Mylon, et cetera. And what I see there is that it, those companies are no longer just looking at Biocon as a place where you can make inexpensive biosimilars, but more importantly, use that relationship. You know, it's almost like Oscar Kennedy's type question, what can you do with this relationship that you could not do before? So I think innovation is going to be occurring across global, we live in a global village, there are no geographic boundaries. And uh, they are going to be the catalyst that's going to bring in the new ways of looking at developing things differently, uh, executing on development programs differently to make them affordable. The other thing that there's plenty of room for innovation for is beyond the, the biologic production techniques itself. I mean, for example, there's a drug called amphotericin B that's effective in treating leishmaniasis with a single dose as opposed to a 30 to 45 day course of treatment that some of the other drugs require. Well, AMFO-B is, is a liposomal delivery, which is pretty complicated, but they figured out how to get it and put it in a cold pack on the back of a motorcycle so that it can, oh, you know about this, Paul. So it, it can be transported into some of the remote villages in India. So it's not just sometimes the production techniques itself, it's how do we think about the, the value chain? How do we think about delivering? You know, what does Coke do to get Coca-Cola into the most remote village you'd ever find in Africa or, or Asia. And, and what can we learn from that? How can we think outside the box there? So there's room for that as well. Let me just make one comment. The, the reason that the drugs are expensive is not because they're expensive to manufacture. And that's true for biologics as well as small molecules. Biologics are more expensive to manufacture than small molecules. But the real reason is because the right now it costs us about $1.8 billion to put a drug onto the market. 
It's not 800 million the way the Tufts study suggested it was a number of decades ago. It's probably more like 1.8 billion. And some studies have, have, think that that number may be as great as 3.5 billion. So the reason that drugs are expensive is because the attrition rate is so high. It turns out that for biologics, the attrition rate is half that of the attrition rate of small molecules. So in reality, it's much cheaper to develop and sell a biologic for most of the life cycle of that product than it is a small molecule. To answer your question about how to make them more expensive, the most powerful way is to increase the likelihood that it's going to succeed in development. Let me offer just one more thought on that, too. And there's another way to come at the problem completely, which is to provide other sources of support and incentives. So on things like the advanced market commitment, uh, a prearranged volume purchase commitment on the part of funding governments so that companies who are producing the, the vaccine in question will actually do it. Um, priority review vouchers, the, 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 some of the other incentives, support coming through Gavi or, or the, the airline tax that pays to help reduce these costs. And the bigger theme on that to me is that this is a multilateral problem. This is not a problem that the drug companies can solve or should be asked to solve on their own. Uh, it, that's not rational. It's not reasonable or fair. So there has to be a multilateral approach to this. And again, I come back to the fact that the global health spending in its entirety is a tiny sliver of what's spent uh, on uh, the, the, the for-profit R&D sector. And there needs to be more support from governments and, and other agencies. Thank you. Great. Uh, well, uh, this uh, brings, the, brings us to the end of the panel and actually to the end of the conference today. I hope you've all enjoyed being here at Stanford. This has been a fascinating day, and I want to thank our panel. I think they have capped it off with everything from drug pricing, science innovation, the role of the U.S., uh, to evolution in Darwin. So thank you very much. Uh, For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.